musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal. Okay, I think I'm ready. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Determining the rates of metabolic recovery and preventing musculoskeletal injury is the bread and butter of Dr. Karen Kelly's research out of San Diego. Unlike many researchers, she's not primarily focused on the PT aspects of military training per se. She looks at how external environments dictate the warfighter's ability to recover. This ranges from gear choice and configuration to the fatigue caused when units who specialize in things like scuba diving have long bouts of training. These special populations require incredible feats of muscular and structural endurance, which, when accompanied by unorthodox hours of operation, can really set these guys and gals up for shitty recovery. It's a good thing they have Dr. Kelly on their side to advocate for their performance. Here it is, episode 333. Athlete Nishan, it's that time. It's my Michael Buffer. I just noticed that you grip your mic, Rip. Always thumb over the mic. That's probably why you sound like such a goofball. <laughs> Power Athlete Nation, it's the time to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme. It's Power Athlete Radio time. The premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. It's just didn't have the right sequence to it, does it? Nah, I felt the strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. Or do we want to go back to our favorite text? Strength. Callie's <laughs> <laughs> gonna kill us. That's right, Callie. Uh, Don't yeah, you bleep that. The the lisp is too much. It's not a lisp, it's a th. 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 <laughs> Sounds like a lisp. No lisp. Th- suffering thuckatash. Suffering thuckatash. It'd be thrank. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what it would be. Yeah, you sound like a suffering succotash. Yeah. Okay, so we won't do that. Fine. You want the thumb around the mic? Sylvester, the cat. Oh, this is fucking Rambo, isn't it? Where he grips the fucking uh, oh. uh, radio. Yeah. yeah, and you hear it go. Yeah. <laughs> Arms look very similar. Uh, we'll Photoshop that in. Power Athlete Nation, enough about literally the nothing we talked about for the last two minutes, but let's talk about something very important. You, the listener. You know who you know who I love, John. I love these listeners. Who Don't do you, you? Who do you love? The listeners. The listeners. The listeners. I love them so much. Not all of them. Only the ones that take the four seconds to rate this podcast on iTunes. Am I wrong, Tex? No, not at all. Right. <laughs> rate and review. Good, great, grand, wonderful. Those people I long for. <laughs> well, those reviews. Are hilarious. Yes, Honestly. we have the best reviews, the most premier reviews in strength and conditioning on iTunes, 100%. I mean, it's full of inside jokes. Anybody who goes to read the reviews on this show are going to be like, what in the, what fuck? the fuck? Pass. These guys are amazing. <laughs> Pass. Uh, all these people are just making fun of the hosts. I don't even know what they're talking about most of the time. Seems like the guests are pretty good. But guess what, people? That's how this show has been specifically engineered and designed. Am mm. I wrong, Tex? You're not wrong. So... If you're listening right now, even if you're driving, take your hands off the wheel. You pick up your phone, put the skinny pedal to the ground. Smash that like button. And you go to five stars and you like it. Or I will put you to sleep. You will go to sleep or I'll put you to sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, we would appreciate it. Because how many likes are we at, McQuilkin? 360. Those are rookie numbers. We're going to have to bump those up. Yeah, we're going to bump those up. We need at least 1,000. Yeah, and I know there's 1,000 of you out there. I know. I know it. 
go do it now. It's so easy. It is literally the most easy thing. I've been creating accounts almost <laughs> <laughs> and liking the podcast. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> uh, I, oh, that's funny. Yeah, I just haven't figured out how to do it on Stitcher yet. So that's why there's only like four there. And if you're listening on Stitcher, go do it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're trying to take over the world with this podcast. I know it's very surprising with how lackluster it's been lately with all the Luke talk and text talk. Uh, we know what you want, people. You just want to hear the big guy. And that's what you get today with special guest Karen Kelly. But first, we must announce we're just two weeks, almost two weeks, less than two weeks away from Wade's Wad. It is the capstone of the fundraising cycle. It is the uh, for our charity, Wade's Army. We celebrate Wade and all the soldiers near and far who've been involved with Wade's Army. We celebrate all the donors uh, with a Wade's workout event on November 12th. If you're following a power athlete program on November 12th, there will be Wade's Day, Wade's Wad posted up, and then we'll also throw it on... Um, we'll also throw it on social media for people that are following. Um, you can do it on Power Athlete. You know, Johnny Watt will have it and uh, John Wellborn and all these guys. So we'll post it up with Saturday a, with a deal. No. It is a Tuesday. Perfect. I remember Wednesday fell on like Wednesday. a Sunday. It's falling on a Wednesday and mm-hmm. like, but yeah, but uh, we're going to be able to smash it on that Tuesday. So it's good. It's, um, it's a terrible workout that I created that involves... Uh, what is it? Um, it's a uh, single arm, one, single arm dumbbell, dumbbell snatches, snatch. weighted pull-ups, thrusters, single arm dumbbell thruster thrusters. and weighted pull-ups, mm-hmm. five rounds, 11, 12, 11. I'm smashing it this year. You guys are all uh, I beat you every single year. Not this year. Based off your training volume, I'm feeling pretty good. You think so? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. And your ping pong. <laughs> what in the fuck, Tex, are you trying to say? <laughs> You're going to notice a trend from here on. Mark my words. Till November 12th, I'm putting the gauntlet down. Text First Luke live stream. For the wad or yeah, ping pong? Both. Your ping pong winning so streak between, is done. It's over. Your pickleball, done. Smoothie matches are all mine. Between each round, are you suggesting a ping pong match? No, that would not end well for me. <laughs> that's, that's exactly why we should do it. Do you think I'm catfishing them? What do you think? Um, I think somewhere in the deep, like recesses of your mind, you'll somehow find a way to pull it out. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. And this is a fact. This isn't just fabricated data. This is a fact. It's, I can stand up fabulated data today. I could have stood up 315 pounds. Could you on my squat? I did on On my single leg, (laughs) my single leg. Split squats, yeah. So this was a trap bar deadlift from the knees? No, no. We, uh, we, we have these uh, big wagon wheels that we put on the deadlift bar. And we loaded up to 315 with like, I want to say like one or two chains on there. And McQuilkin goes, <laughs> and it felt like my, <laughs> mind you, the bar, chains? the bar is a little elevated. So it's, it's like in a more advantageous position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, knee, he, like knee height. He can't crack it. It just fucking goes nowhere. Did we talk about the volume in which we've trained previously? But you're talking about how more volume makes you a more capable Wade Swad contender. 
But that training day. The best was Luke left at like 7.15 and we weren't even done with fucking. Uh, After one round, one slam ball, actually. I heard the ball hit the ground once. Mm -hmm. I gotta go. go. Uh, It's called Grindstone where reps are optional. (laughs) Seven sledgehammer strikes. You know what optional means? the workout? Uh, No, just seven sledgehammer strikes. You know what optional day means? How I interpret it? It's like you have the option to like try hard or not. You can do all the reps or some of them. That's what optional Wait a means. minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're supposed to do A, B, C, D, and optional day is E, which would be on the fifth day. No, Today's Thursday. <laughs> See, this is what I was always nervous about with the grindstone, where I would be like, hey, you're supposed to, there's a hierarchy, A, B, C, D, E, and if you mm-hmm. get a fifth day, you do your optional day. Yeah. No, I'm tracking. It was, it was mandatory B, and just ran out of time. So I did get section A in. Mm. Oh, did you? Yeah, so so block A, I got in. I did iron flex. I did some etc. Et pulls with the intern, and I did one round of or two rounds of uh, the conditioning, which is supposed to be fifteen minutes. Took me seven minutes, so I did half the workout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm deadlifting three hundred fifteen pounds, no problem from fucking wagon wheels. But we don't know that. I know it. But I got this leg thing going on. <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, Tex, I'll face off. I'll go with face off. You want to go face off? Uh, mix and matching the ping pong in? No, no, straight just up? straight up. Okay. I feel better about straight up. We can do a multi-event. We'll do a ping pong, a wade's wad, and fucking pickleball. I, I did used to have this idea. Spike ball. Terrible idea. But people go ahead and steal it from Duke CrossFit DuPont days. Because DuPont Circle, there's a bunch of, like, an old school park with the chess boards in stone and concrete benches around them. Uh-huh. So I wanted to do a chess-to-bar competition where it's like one minute on of thrusters or something stupid, and then you sit down, and then we play chess back and forth, and then find a way to go back and forth until either you beat me in chess or, I don't know, I collapse from the one minute of whatever the barbell exercise is. Did you get this from, like, wasn't there a thing on something, social media, where there's boxing? But in between it, boxing yes, rounds, yes, it was they definitely played chess. In, mm, you it, see this? Yeah, it was definitely an iteration of that. Yeah. Back in, this is like 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah, way back. So it was chess to bar based off the boxing chess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a bad idea. So, well, hey, it's on. DuPont challenges de- thrown down. Intern, we're chess live streaming. No, not chess. I'm, I just don't have the patience. But it's only one minute that I'm going to win. Of chess. <laughs> yeah. Never move your back row. Yeah, it's hard to lose <laughs> when you never move your back row. Um, oh. That's a black sheep reference for you, big guy. Mm-hmm. Um, enough about us. Enough about us. Uh, Wade's Wad, do it. Review this, do it. If, you, uh, if you've listened to this podcast with any continuity, you know the symposium is literally in four weeks. So get there. If you, don't, if you haven't already, ticket prices are going up next week or two, um, if there's any even available. So off with that. On to Karen Kelly, researcher, professor, working with every aspect of military in terms of uh, providing data to decision makers to determine what is the best course of action, what are the best tools, what are farce tools uh, to empower performance for people who keep us safe at night and tuck us into our nice warm blanket of freedom. Well, it's actually chilled. Right, because we're supposed to be yeah, sleeping into it's, it's a cool blanket. Of it's freedom. a cool blanket of freedom. So let's get on with Karen Kelly. I'm getting too old for this shit. Totally, Danny Glover. For those of you guys who've never seen Lethal Weapon, 
One of oh. my faves. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. know. There's probably people listening to this podcast that have never... Have you seen The Lethal Weapon Intern? Hmm. Which, which one? one? For one so, and two? Why'd you stop? 12? Lethal <laughs> Weapon 12? That's fake. So, Karen, we have an hey, intern... Well, it's like on- the last first Blood Rambo's coming out. Did uh, you guys Friday. See that? Mm-hmm. I oh, know. Yeah. I actually yeah. really love Rambo, so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go see Who that. It's kind of like you, you have to if you grow up in my generation, so... Yeah, you know, I was... Th- one of the things reflecting on on my long drive to work, eight minutes, but was I never really watched the Rocky movies. And I thought... We've definitely discussed this. And I think it's because I was like, we were a Rambo family. You know, we were a combat family for movies. We didn't really have, like, feel-good sports movies where there's, like, this underdog and comeback. It was fucking blood. Like, blood and guts, shoot them up. That's the type of stuff we watch. So, like, that's that was my sly exposure as a kid. So were you a Stallone, uh, Van Damme, or Seagal guy? Yeah. All three, huh? Oh, yeah. And Schwarzenegger, yeah. obviously. Oh, God. A big, big, probably bigger Seagal guy than all of them. Oh, really? I don't doubt based. Oh. Yeah, I think... I believe, were, that was a good year for I action. I believe at your wedding, the only conversation your father and I have were centered around Seagal. Yeah. Um, they were a big, big Seagal family. You know, uh, uh, I love Andy Stump's just taking down of, like, oh, attacking yeah. of Seagal. Just makes me laugh where he's showing his hairlines. He's like, ah. Yeah, like, listen, uh, people, I have a tribal armband. Like, I know I had bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna own it. Like, Seagal was fucking badass. Hard to kill. Under siege. Yeah. Under Siege 2. Harder to kill. <laughs> uh, what was the... Um, I think his breakout was hard to kill. Was that the one where he was the cop? Keep going. And he oh, went, so, all of them. Yeah. Uh, what, what, was it Broken Arrow where he died in the five minutes? No, that was... Um, that was uh, Get Off My Plane. Um, what, no, it was Kurt Russell that no. took over as the nerd hero. Was he? Did he die off? Because he also died off in... Uh, Broken Harrison Arrow Ford. was the one with... Um, uh, Christian Slater. Decision. That's it. We watched that together. Yeah, we did. It was a great movie. <laughs> what, I remember going to the theater to see that with my dad because Steven Seagal was the top-line actor. Oh, and they killed the wall. He killed him five well, minutes. Spoiler alert. Well, you know why? Because he was probably such a pain oh. in the ass like they had him written in and they just were like, this Fuck guy's this an guy. a-hole. He's out. Kill him. Yeah. Right. Get him uh, out of the picture. Uh, so we could probably do this for another eight hours. <laughs> okay. <Right>. But <laughs> Karen, thanks for joining Don't us. Don't scare me with a good time. Yeah, on yeah. Power Athlete Radio, which is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Movie, movies. Uh, but in case any of our listeners aren't up to snuff or familiar with what you're doing, why don't you give a brief intro? Because we, we got to sit down and chat with you a few weeks ago at the TSAC conference. And I think that, uh, first off, super cool stuff. Give them an intro and then we'll just kind of get into it because I know that we have plenty to talk about. Okay. Uh, my name is Karen Kelly, and I work at Warfighter Performance and Naval Health Research Center in San Diego. And the primary thrust of our research is really focused on uh, three, well, I guess two areas, human performance optimization and musculoskeletal injury prevention. So all of our research is in line with um, improving operator readiness uh, to deploy and as well as when they come back. So that's kind of the emphasis on what our research program focuses on. And currently, most of our projects are centered around looking at stress physiology, so tactical stress space, looking at how people respond in highly kinetic environments, um, as well as undersea medicine. And then we work a lot with the infantry up at Camp Pendleton and looking at the effects of load carriage on lumbar spine, back injuries, back pain, as well as we've been helping to redesign the body armor for the last few years to make it um, more ergonomical for them. So 
sort of like an overall picture of what we do, myself and my staff. And then, so how'd you get into it? Like, give us a little more rewind. Well, um, I've been an athlete my whole life. And then going through my PhD program, I studied, you know, exercise physiology and metabolism, primarily metabolic physiology. Then my postdoctoral work was all in diseases. So metabolic diseases, obesity, diabetes, liver disease, kidney disease, any kind of disease you can imagine. And as an athlete, I'd get very frustrated because we'd reverse disease through diet and exercise programs, and which is great, but I really wanted to get back to working with a healthy population. Um, so I was speaking at the American College of Sports Medicine, uh, their annual conference. I was giving a keynote speech on a caloric balance one year and met a gentleman who I ended up taking over his position at the, with the Navy. And he was in warfighter performance. I'm like, oh, that sounds right up my alley, getting back into athletics. and I was still competing at the time. I used to do adventure racing, um, eco challenge, calico challenge type events, and so it just kind of fell into fell into my lap, and it was a good fit. So, kind of a random way around, but yeah. oh, it's legit. Networking is very important. Getting out there and talking to people if you want to make a career—that's one thing. I, I teach right now in graduate school too, and I mentor a lot of students, and that's something I always tell them: get out there, make yourself available network it's the best way to make contacts you know for sure who knows what opportunity what's going to present itself so when um is everything uh i mean i I know you do kind of a mix of like um you know hands-on but also doing it in the clinical is it uh is it really just setting up the models and then going in and working with the soldiers or are you actually bringing them into the lab and putting them through testing so it's, it's both, but my group is primarily in the field. So we actually go out, we bring our, what we've learned in the lab, and we've, through some, a lot of creative ingenuity, take it out to the field so that we can actually test the guys during their training. So it's, it's a little bit dirtier data, but I believe it's more ecologically valid. So it's what they're actually happening at the time. So the lab we use for proof of concept. So for example, the body armor we'll bring in, and I team up with our biomechanical group. And we can put all the markers on, we can test all the biomechanics in the lab, and then we go out to the field to really get the input and the feedback from the Marines as they're going through a hike or they're going through training iterations, because ultimately that's what's important, it's how it feels and how it functions out in the field, you know. So we take the science to the field, basically, yeah. Get down and dirty with them, I mean, and just uh, test them on what they're doing, so... I think a good place to start is connecting your research in metabolic disease with the soldiers working with now. And what are the diets that the military is recommending? And do you have the opportunity to influence what your specific soldiers under your watch are eating? Or are you sticking with military guidelines? Um, well, first of all, I'm not a dietitian, So I'm going to say that, you know, right off the bat, I, you know, even though I'm I understand the physiology and I teach the biochemistry on how our body breaks down foods. I'm not a registered dietitian, but what we try to do is work really closely with the dietitians. So for example, the special operations community, they have a very good uh, human performance program, which they have embedded performance dietitians. So I tend to work closely with them. The data we collect is on like how many calories they're expending during a certain training exercise. We can break it down to macronutrient content. And then we basically turn that information over to the dietitians because there's no one size fits all diet for anybody. You know, there's there's been some stuff in the media I'm sure you've seen on ketone supplementation or ketone esters. They're doing some uh, work right now and seeing whether it's efficacious for this community or for the military in general. 
but really the dietitians help to formulate individual diets for the operators so that they can meet their individual needs. So there's not one blanket diet that's promoted. I think when you're looking at conventional forces, they're definitely trying to improve the food quality um, that's provided. You know, there's been a lot of talk around, can we make some changes in the, you know, the defects, the chow halls, so that the, the military in general has better access to quality nutrition. Ultimately, though, everyone's an adult and they, you know, they have to make their own decisions, you know, just like we do. So is, uh, is you know, I, um, I did read some stuff in recently that they were, you know, discussing, uh, you know, using ketogenic diets for, you know, uh, Naval Special Warfare in those groups. Uh, is there like an application for that more with uh, the guys like on SDV, the guys that do a lot of the underwater mini sub type stuff? They're, they're looking into it, you know, but right now I think what we've been trying to do with, um, with particular groups is actually look at what their metabolic requirements are. So we have a, an effort coming up in October where, you know, when the divers surface, we'll have them breathing through a metabolic cart. So we can actually look at what are their caloric needs during various dives of different lengths and different depths um, at different water temperatures. So again, then we can make an informed decision as to whether or not a certain diet, like a ketogenic diet or a ketone supplement would be beneficial or not for them. So we're trying to really, before they make decisions, is to provide some science, some empirical data behind those decisions that are being made. So it's not just a fad diet or a fad thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. I mean, it's, yeah. um, I, I, I guess the idea is to create, you know, um, and I hate to use the word elite, but like elite human performance for these guys that are, you know, doing such a, um, I guess it's like a, very multi-dimensional job where you know they could be underwater they could be in different environments and you have to be able to kind of you know not only clothe them protect them get them training and ready but also fuel them in these different environments correct and that's a lot of what we're doing with them too is we do a lot of gear evaluation it sounds strange being in our lane because it's more from the physiological perspective can they survive in this wetsuit or this gear or that gear and be you know be functional and so a lot of the science we do in that realm is in thermoregulation and looking at and you account for metabolism due to thermoregulation. So some people think of metabolism as like, this is just what my body's burning. But when you're really cold and you're shivering, you have a sh shivering metabolic rate that's coupled to whatever the exercise metabolism that you need. So there's a lot of little factors that come in. So we're trying to give all that information back to the command so that they can make a good decision as far as um, survivability for the operators as well. So ultimately, you know, we are a research command. So Going back to your tech, um, your question, Texas, we don't drive the decisions. We just collect all the information and turn it over to the leadership so that they can make informed decisions based upon the data that we've collected. You know, so we um, we don't. It's not our lane, I guess you can say, to to make those. We just make the recommendations based upon the the, the data we've collected. Make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, makes sense. Okay. But I feel like you're still like, you still have personalities to account for, right? You oh, know, and, <laughs> yeah. And data, data is interesting, right? Especially when you're not, I mean, you're going to have to model it for the crayon crowd most of the time. So they just see red, green, and blue. Uh, right. So like what, like, what are some challenges with that? Because I know we talked about how... I guess leadership and soldiers, are, like you said, they're adults, which means they're just right. people. So we all succumb to shiny boxes and new gadgets and new toys, all of which tout like data insight, key performance insights and intervention. So like, so how do you balance that whole thing uh, 
with that type of audience? It's tricky. I mean, so a lot of times you have to take, you don't want to crush anyone's soul when they have a shiny object that they're interested in. So, you, you know, you, you balance it by maybe testing the object, for example, and then providing the information back and giving your suggestions. But at the same time, like to your point, you have to make it relevant to whoever you're talking to. So the way you communicate information to an operator versus someone in a leadership position might be different. It's the same information. You're just conveying it in a different way that makes irrelevant to them. You know, like an operator is not going to want to know their VO2 max. Well, a lot of them actually do, but I mean, I don't know. They were, you just depends on how you want to tell them the data and how you manage shiny objects is a lot of times we test things because we don't know either. Or as you guys know, there's this inundation with uh, data capture devices. You know, there's wearables, there's rings, there's watches, there's chest straps. And, you know, everyone has their own experience with it. But at the end of the day, we're, I was just having this conversation with my staff yesterday. You know, if a hundred dollar heart rate monitor is as effective as collecting heart rate as a thousand dollar heart rate monitor. Why won't we just use the hundred dollar one? That's idiot proof and simple and easy to, to get the information off of versus being inundated with this thousand dollar piece that maybe collects like 42 metrics that really don't mean anything. And so I think sometimes like in the science field, I see people collect data for the sake of collecting it. And it's kind of useless information. You know, like you can look at HRV, for example, in 40 different ways, but does it really matter at the end of the day? Like what's the most important critical element of that, um, you know, that, that metric that you're looking at. So I think in some ways, like everyone falls victim to shiny objects. Like we have it all the time, but if, if it's something that's easy to use and it gives them enough information to, to hey, you know, like, Hey, these are my trends that I'm noticing, like my heart rate's going up or I'm not sleeping or I'm not recovering. Then I think that's the information that we want to give them versus, Hey, your SDNN of your HRV, like, it doesn't mean anything to the guys. It doesn't even really mean anything to me, you know? So do you guys do some form of intervention? Like I know you guys use like uh, aura rings and, you know, Garmin watches and, um, you know, a million different, uh, you know, modalities and different ways to collect data. Um, as each soldier or each individual is going through it, I mean, do you guys like make interventions? Um, is it, uh, is somebody monitoring those or is it kind of self monitored by the individuals? We try. So eventually like a lot of those studies, it's kind of like step one is, figuring out what the process is going on and then figuring out where to intervene. So it's kind of a yes and no. There definitely are interventions, but we don't want to intervene and like give the guys a supplement, for example, or give them something if it's not been shown to be safe and effective in a like an athlete population or a student population before we're going to give it to our guys. Like they, I mean, as you guys know, they already function at a very high level and they're going to get the job done no matter what. It's just if we can give them tools or discover tools or test tools, that can maybe help them re recover faster or perform a little bit better or give them that edge, then, then that's the way, you know, we're going to look at it. So interventions happen when we have something that's already been fairly validated in the lay population. You know, so for example, if these ketone esters prove to be, to be good, then they'll, then the human performance uh, people, the dietitians will figure out a way to incorporate that into their, their kit or their meal plan or, whatever it is mission specific. It's not like a blanket um, thing. Does that make sense? I don't know if I answered your question there, John, but. No, no. I mean, it's, uh, I, um, 
you know, we do a ton of work is, uh, you know, we work in a similar pool with, uh, you know, NSW and having worked with these different groups and, you know, warfighters around the world. Uh, there's always this kind of uh, separation between like at home versus deployed. And like I always sometimes think like um, and the way I've always looked at it is almost like when they get deployed, it's like more like the off season because now they have more time to train. They're more focused on what they're doing. It seems like they have less, uh, I guess you could say, office or busy work and family and all the other stuff. So they become very, you know, focused on a lot of these things. And I just wonder if, uh, you know, if we're trending towards, um, I guess, uh, like trending towards, you know, being not only able to like monitor statistics and vitals and all the other different performance metrics through these different collections, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, items, uh, if like there's a way to like actually fine tune this and, you know, make interventions so that, you know, Hey, if a guy hasn't slept in three days, all of a sudden it makes him more prone for injuries. Or, you know, if, uh, if a guy's used to pretty high training volume and now that training volume is reduced. So I just wonder how you're able to kind of or at least provide information because I sometimes think too much information causes paralysis. So like, how do you kind of segment to be able to find what's most vital and be able to provide people and make interventions or at least get people on the right track without fucking completely melting them down? Well, I think, I think that's the way people are moving. It's just right now. I mean, for the lack of better words, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, there's like, we're just one entity, for example, but the army has their people, Marine Corps, you know, everyone has their own entities that are also collecting this information via different devices. So I think like going into telemedicine is what it sounds like you're maybe suggesting a little bit. I think there is some way of like wanting to monitor everyone on a daily basis. And especially, I mean, I know the human performance, uh, you know, the coaches and the dietitians, they do that to some extent with the guys that come and see them, you know, it depends on the community, I think as well. But I think that's where people are moving is that you can eventually then make an informed decision. Like, is this guy not mission ready or not based upon A, B, C, and D? I think that from based on conversations I've had, I think people want to get there, but at the end of the day, they're still going to pick the best guy tactically for the job, you know, and, and, you know, um, as well as I do, it's just, these guys are used to functioning at a very high level. They're used to functioning sleep deprived. They're used to functioning in a high stress state and performing well. But I think on overall for their overall health, uh, that's where I, I think the trend is, is going towards is looking at um, monitoring them um, for, so that for recoveries, for repairs, so they're not becoming overstressed or over, you know, or damaged, you know, so there definitely is moving that direction. It's just a big animal to wrangle you know, if you think about between all the different services. So, yeah. I'd love to get specific with some of the warfighter demands. So when we're strength and conditioning and preparing athletes, we have a great understanding of the demands of the sport. But then what are the warfighter demands that I guess you as an athlete didn't know going in and working with these that you've discovered are necessary components to factor into their training and your research? Well, I think one of the biggest things, because the term tactical athlete drives me crazy, is that me too. the biggest me difference too. between athletes and sport and our operational community is that athletes in sport get a lot of time to rest and recover, and they have access to the best of food, the best of conditions, uh, trainers, massage therapists, and whatever. And our guys tend to, or the military in general, they have multiple stressors put on them at any any time, especially if they're deployed or on the, they're on a mission. They might not have good sleep. They might not have good food. You know, they're traveling on military air. There's a lot of different stressors that are imposed on them all at the same time that compound versus an athlete 
can, you know, take a day off or have a rest day. Like there's really where they don't have an ample recovery time, just in my personal opinion. So they, you know, they're, they're training and they're training and they're training. And then going back to what John said, when they deploy is actually when they have some downtime, depending on the area that they deploy to, where they can tend to, from what the, they've told me from coming back is where then they actually have time to recover and repair and rebuild. Um, so it's, 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 that's what I think is most interesting difference between athletes and training athletes and in the military. It's just that downtime. We don't, they don't have as much downtime because there's always something to do, especially on the training days. They have very long training days. You know, they're up prepping all their gear, then they go train, then they have to decon all their gear. And those days can be 14, 16 hours sometimes, you know, from start to finish, just from my observations, you know. Did that answer your question, Tex? I wasn't yeah, sure if you wanted more specific. I am just also curious about the undersea management. And I know, John, what's the name of the those guys? Uh, the, the SEAL delivery vehicles. SEAL delivery vehicles and just that aspect of stress and preparing. So any small things like that that just came as a shock and surprise starting working with this population? Yeah, just they're, they're one the, like I said, they're long days because they build all their rigs and then they go and train and then they have to, you know, clean all their gear afterwards. It's, you know, and it's very sensitive stuff, as you can imagine with water, if you don't clean it appropriately, you get mold and all that stuff, which is not good, you know, for you breathing mold. Um, but then that, and just the stressor of undersea. So that's actually a very understudied area. And so there's a lot of old work done in military and Navy divers, for example, but they have a very different mission. They have a very different way of diving. Same thing with recreational scuba. And so I think the biggest thing was just the amount of um, stress that's imposed on them just simply by the environment, which it's not, they're not kicking super hard. They're not diving really hard. It's not, not like in that aspect, um, but just the environmental change and pressure um, as they go down in the water. Um, seems to affect their physiology quite a bit. So that's, you know, been something that we're still really trying to tease out and look at and just the fatigue sort of associated with diving every day or diving three or four days a week. And do any of you guys dive? Yeah, I have. Yeah. No, okay. the, the know, bends is my biggest fear. Dive, I, 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 it's pretty hard to, 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 to give yourself the bends. Like, 12 like, feet d- deep like uh <laughs> when i look it depends on depth so when i looked at like the like the recreational like the paddy like they give dive charts and then when i saw the navy tables yeah i was like you gotta really fuck yourself up as a recreational <laughs> diver diver to like give yourself the bends yeah and so. the thing is, is you have to remember too is diving you're working in a, like a site limited environment so when you're on top of the land like you can see things you have landmarks and things like that but I don't know how I, I suck at underwater navigation. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And so unless you have like really clear landmarks, it's, it's tough. So they have a lot of cognitive challenge and things just with being in sight limited. If the visibility is not good, it's not like on a recreational dive, you're like, oh, I can't see anything. I'm just going to call it a day. They still have to go out and do what they have to do. So it, independent of the sea state or the conditions or the site. And then there's a lot of mental aspects, I think, that go into it. I mean, I'm very comfortable underwater, but a lot of people aren't very comfortable underwater. And so, you know, you have that element of not necessarily knowing which way is up um, and just breathing through an apparatus. Some people don't like breathing through an apparatus. I mean, these guys are obviously very skilled at it. But just to your question, Texan, what are some of the things is just the rapid development of their skills that they get is, is what I have noticed over their training cycles, these guys get so proficient 
fairly quickly and they almost have to, you know? So, but it's physically demanding. I mean, John, I don't know, like when you go for a dive or I go for a dive, it's, it's tiring. Like you have all this crap on you, you're breathing, you're, you're pulling air. It's not like you're breathing naturally. So. No, I, um, uh, you know, I, I started skin, like, uh, we would go, um, spearfishing and like, so when I was a kid, we would go down to the beach and what the waves sucked, we'd always bring, bring our slings and we'd go spearfishing down in like Haggerty's and all like the area in PB. And so I, you just kind of grow up in it. I remember when I was 14, uh, my dad and I went and I got certified for diving and like we went out, but I mean, like, uh, like I had been free diving since I was a little kid. So it really wasn't that big a deal. And, um, I just, yeah, it was a lot of fun to be able to stay underneath. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool environment. It's just, um, yeah, I mean, just definitely putting on all that crap. I definitely still appreciate just being able to go skin diving and, uh, uh yeah. being able to go spearfishing. Like we were just down in Mexico and went spearfishing and it was, it was pretty good. And the hilarious part is I with Rob Wolf and, uh, there was a bunch of waves and he's like, I think I'm getting seasick. I'm like, you know, you can't get seasick in the fucking water. He's like, I think I'm getting seasick. I'm like, God damn it. But, uh, cool too. I mean, there's people that throw up through the regulators or uh, whatever from, from the movement. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, to me, it's relaxing. You know, yeah. I was reading something somewhere recently. I can't remember who. He was an Army Air Force guy. I can't remember, but he basically has his trainees a lot of times go and float in the pool to actually for recovery, for muscle recovery. Because if you think about it, and I do the same, I don't even just realize, like, I always go and go surf after a long run or a race or something because that buoyancy helps to take that pressure, the gravity off of your muscles and off your joints. And it's really relaxing. I was like, oh, this is. I guess going to like float pod strategy oh. or anything else, it's another way of recovering. And these guys don't have the muscle strains like we see it in, on land type activity, but it's still an exhausting type of training. And it's long duration and again, in the dark and all those little elements that kind of feed into it. When we were out in uh, Virginia beach, uh, working with uh, the fellows out there, they had um, uh, their own flow pods. So we got a chance to get in the float tanks and I'm not kidding you. Like if I could get in one of those almost every single day for an, for an hour, at least, I think I could be like a normal human being in like six or 10 years. Like yeah, they, <laughs> they are like, I loved it. Like I, I got in there and I was like, dude, this is by far the coolest thing. Like there's a, a flow place down the street that I, I drive by and I always want to go in and do it. I just haven't found the time, but man, I, I really think that some of that stuff, um, just is like it's just so intuitive like when you get in there and people are like what'd you think i'm like i thought it was great but then other people are like i can't deal with the silence and have problems so i guess it just depends on the individual um right. it's like being in the womb that's that's basically what they said if okay. so uh some people have issues with going back in the womb essentially but it's like you're in a neutrally environment right you're sense sensory deprivation most of them and it's supposed to be set at your body temp. So it's, you're not hot, you're not cold. Right. And so it is, but you're right. There's a lot of people that have issues with being in sensory deprivation and just tuning out. But I think that's the problem with our, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but the problem with our society. Whole podcast. So no, like, our podcast should be called tangent. Cause I was just about to go to a days, days of thunder reference. No, like, oh, um, <laughs> so uh, like, well, no, cause there's too much. It's like sensory overload in our society. Nowadays, sure. there's like all this technology, you know, it, I even get mad at my son because he's in the shower watching like a YouTube video. I'm like, turn off the damn phone and like take a shower, you know? Yeah, Luke so, watches YouTube videos in the shower too. Yeah, yeah. two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. And so I think sometimes like purposely like putting yourself in that environment. So it's like, I guess it's a form of meditation. Like I can't sit still. This is probably the longest I've ever sat still um, to save my life. And so for me, like sitting and meditating is never going to happen. But if I can float or I can 
do something because for some reason it's made the body position or you know you're in this forced space, but you learn to shut down or shut your mind off. And I, I think people need more of that. You know, we have too much input nowadays. So uh, when you guys are, or so like when you're setting this stuff up and you're working with, um, you know, warfighters and, you know, different people in the community, is there ever like a, like extensive history um, that you guys take, like to try to like understand each individual. And then from that, you know, and I don't know if you guys, I'm, I'm trying to think if, uh, if there was like commonalities that you've found that were surprising where, you know, you notice that the majority of guys that were pretty good at this all fit within kind of the same, you know, like same trends so that like, uh, you know, just it, it, because as we've done this work with guys, like the stories feel very similar where I'm like, man, right. I think I've, you know, I've heard this before. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, first of all, from a physical perspective. So years ago we did all the physical standards validation for different components and just looking at the guys physically across like different soft entities. And even within the uh, ground combat elements within the Marine Corps, all the guys are very similar. It's like Stepford wives, but guys, you know, they look, their, uh, their builds and their physical fitness is, is very similar. They all, look very much the same I hate, I'm not to like stereotype but they you know they all kind of look the same and they have a similar personality you know all of them are have a very um what's the way like tenacious they have very strong personalities I don't know what the correct word is to describe them but they definitely do and then as far as backgrounds you know you do get a lot of people that are coming from I mean good work ethics I would say like either football water polo you know certain sports that it requires a certain amount of toughness, especially in the selection and assessment process on how these guys get selected out. And you have to have a strong mind to get through a lot of these things. It's not just physical. I think it's more on the mental side. I'm like, can you push past where you think you can? And then we have some unique cases of individuals that have come from really tough backgrounds. And that's where, you know, so going through some of this training is not, I would say it's not that hard for them. It is hard for them, but they already have the mental prowess to kind of get through these difficult times, you know, so you definitely see a commonality and I've seen a shift over the years um, in the last, you know, nine, 10 years that I've been doing this from where I'd say a lot of the people that are coming in nowadays are actually coming in with more degrees, even though they're going enlist, in enlisted, they might have masters, some of them have PhDs, and then they're choosing to go into to serve, you know, so since we've had since 9-11 and since a lot of things have changed, it seems like uh, there's a different call to serve. And I've noticed this with my Marines. I work with some of the young infantry guys and I've asked them, I'm like, why would you enlist? We've been at war your entire life. And they're like, well, my grandfather served, my father served. And so they feel this call, you know, to serve as well. So it's a different, different reason why they're, they've enlisted. No. So going, going back a little bit to collecting data and some biometrics to potentially influence decisions on whether or not a dude's ready, right? And now I will get into my Days of Thunder reference. Um, but how powerful, I mean, taking into consideration the power of suggestion, right? I think it was Rob was talking about a, at our last Block 1 event with regards to sleep or something like that. They had this quadrant, right, where people were being tracked on sleep and they weren't, other people weren't, they thought they were. Um, or maybe they weren't. And then you have people who were monitored and reported poor sleep, but told, hey, great night of sleep. Then you had people who were monitored and reported great night of sleep, but told poor sleep. And lo and behold, the power of suggestion takes over. And some of those people fucking felt like they had a shitty night's sleep. Right. So going in with these dudes and 
the power of suggestion to cold trickle that you got special tires and you pass them high. You, you make mean magic tires? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Harry Hogg, what's so special about those tires? Nothing. Big candy ass. Makes reality. It changes reality, right? Changes the lens of reality. Right. So, um, are you noticing any of that? With two part question, I guess. You know, with these guys with the wearables and getting their own insights from these apps that may not be, um, you know the data isn't being churned correctly and it's not the most accurate insights. Like, are they believing it or are they like overpower it? And they just know instinctively like, no, I fucking feel like I'm ready to go tear a head off a line. Let's I, go. I always imagine, and I'll tell you up doc. I always imagine like the wearables for the Marines is like, it like flashes. It's like, you're a Marine. You can do anything. And then those guys <laughs> are like, Hurrah, and they like run through a wall. Whereas like the, like the Navy SEAL dudes probably get like 8,000 like things. And they're like trying to analyze everyone. And like the Marine dudes are like, well, I'm a Marine. I just got to go. Yeah. I got one. I, I, uh, in all the work we've done with the military and the different branches, I've never met a group of individuals that were more proud of who they were than Marines. Even old Marines that like aren't Marines anymore still identify. As Marines, and you look at them, you're like, oh. "Yeah, you still look like a Marine. You're six year old men look like a Marine." 100. I work out at MCRD at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot every morning, and I there's like these 89 like these little old men. I don't know why I'm always in there with little old men, and they're all retired old Marines, and you know they're still in their training. There's this guy, his, his name's Poppy. I don't know what his real name is, but anyways, he's literally 89 years old, and I see him in there every day, like lifting. There's a bunch of them. And they're still Marines, and they still lift and train like they they were. Granted, they're uh, lighter weights, but you know they they're on like the squat racks, and they're trying to do the best they can. It's, it's pretty awesome to see, actually. Life sentence, yeah. man. So, no, but I mean it's uh, I mean there's something to be said that like for that community, um, right. you know, people that live within, you know, tight knit communities that have you know not only support but identity live to be dramatically longer than people that don't. You right. Know? So, yeah, no, it's just, it's hilarious. And like, they probably still introduce himself as a Marine. You're like 70 years ago, but I'm still, you know, it's just, it, right. I, I love fighter it. Pilot. And there's another one I talk to all the time. There's a fighter pilot. You know, they like to always come talk to me about whatever. And so it's like fighter pilots, you know, drill sergeants, they still identify You're right with whatever they are. Most of them are like infantry Marines. And so they're gunnies or gunners and they still um, have that identity, which I think is pretty great. But going back to your question too, is we don't, I don't like to trick them. So I'm a realist. So I measure their urine, for example, for hydration or dehydration. And I am like looking at a brown cup that they give me. I'm like, you're very dehydrated. Like you need to go drink water or we measure their blood glucose right on the spot. So there's a lot of things we give them. That's immediate feedback. Like, Hey, you're about to go dive for X amount of hours. You need to go eat and drink and have a snack. And so I think in our studies, especially when some of the communities we work in, we get to know the guys really well because we're with them for nine months out of the year. And so it's a different, it's a, so a little bit of a different relationship. They collect, they wear all the wearables because we ask them to and um, how much they look at it. I think a lot of it, it's like John said, some of them are very into it and they, they monitor it, they track it, they look at their metrics, they ask a lot of questions. Other guys are just wearing it because they, they're being compliant with our research and they want to help out the greater cause or the greater good. Uh, some guys could, could care less. Others are more, more into it. So I think it just depends, but we don't ever, but they start to recognize, they start to realize as they're involved, like they become more mindful, like, Oh, I'm dehydrated or oh, I didn't sleep well last night because my device told me so. And, and I felt guilty of that too. Like when I, with my aura ring, I'll, I'll wake up and I'm like, Oh, my ring told me I had a good night of sleep. It's like this joke that I have with our sleep physiologist because 
sometimes those devices are also grossly wrong. There's a few out there that we've tested and I'm not going to name any of them, but they'll tell me like, oh, you need 15 hours of sleep to recover. I'm like, who the hell the needs 15 band? hours of sleep to recover? Oh, that sounds like the whoop band. What? That sounds like the whoop band. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 dude, I, I wore a whip every single day for an Karen entire neither, year. Can neither confirm nor no, deny. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fucking, I'm, I'm going to talk from my own personal experience. Uh, dude, I wore mm-hmm. that thing every single day for a year and it was uh, terribly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Because I right. started, I started tracking it against the ore ring and another. But ways. even with like, because I remember having a call with those dudes way before they went retail market, and they were trying to go team training. And you're like, you know what you need is for this app to say on game day for every player, you're this is the you've never been readier. You have the <laughs> right. highest readiness readiness score, right? Yeah. And you just push right. this shit out because, uh, like, trying to create these it, arbitrary readiness scores off no, biometrics arrays, it, it's like. Well, that's, no, so that's the like, thing is they have to know your own array. So, like when yeah. uh, when I had my aura ring, for example, I, I gave it to someone else to use for a while, but I would just m- monitor my trends, you know. But it was getting like creepily accurate. Like when I drink red wine, I get really hot, and then I wake up the next morning, it's like your body temperature was like. I'm like, how did it know I drank wine last night? But for whatever reason, it you know it knew based on. But you just have to look at those trends. Same thing. Like I'm not a huge HRV fan, but I would just walk, monitor my HRV yeah. over time or monitor my heart rate. For me, I just monitor my heart rate for recovery over time because I know if I have a bad night's sleep or if I'm overtraining, it goes up when I'm at rest. And so I think like that's the most important thing when it comes to those devices is just looking at those trends just and using them in that aspect. If you get into well, the that's just like all like, testing. I mean, that's like, uh, like any blood work or any testing, right. like, uh, you know, if we go get blood work and we're looking at this, then that's my single snapshot in time. And, uh, you know, and while they can say, Hey, at this moment in time, this is what it looked like. Uh, that's not as useful as let's say, Hey, I've got my blood work done every six months for the last 10 years. And now I can see trends over time. I did right. Even, and that's one thing we try to tell the guys too, is like, Hey, d- take this with a grain of salt, like look at your data, follow it, monitor it, but don't live and die by what your watch or your ring or whatever is telling you, you know, like we're in the field. We try to use, um, you know, we use a lot of like the polar, like polar is known for having some of the best heart rate monitors, you know? And so we still use like a chest strap because we want to have, um, really good information from it, but we've also done all the testing in the lab. So I think one of your previous questions is prior to us getting data in the field, we usually exercise stress test them in the lab so that we have like on a metabolic heart, we do a submaximal, maximal exercise test. So we get that gradation of heart rates and uh, indirect calorimetry. So when we're collecting data in the field, we can back calculate it based upon the metrics we've done in the lab. So it's not it's not as accurate, let's say, on the metabolic size as using doubly labeled water, but that's not really practical and feasible all the time either. So we do try to combine information that we get so that then when we're giving the operators back their data or their information, they can they can know it's fairly spot on for them, you know. But, I mean, the goal is ultimately, like, give them enough information but not too much information because it's, like, it's overwhelming for even a lot of a lot of scientists, it's just, what are you going to do with all these numbers? And I think that's something that we run into a lot of times is everyone collects, collects, collects. And then you just have this pile of shit where you're kind of like, all right, what can, what's the most important out of all of these metrics? You know, what's the most salient? On the, the performance side of things, I did recently read an article. It was 2011 NBA finals. LeBron James didn't play well and they ended up losing. It's Miami Heat. So then the next year they implemented all this recovery device and limited it as minutes they ended up winning in in um 12 12 or 13 i forget the next year it ended up working 
So then you saw this spread throughout the league because it worked for the number one player, but it was almost an overcompensation now. And now the mindset is don't play during the season. I'm going to peak during playoffs. And it, it's infected. So the article's perspective was this one player's one poor performance. It could have been recovery. It could have not been. But then this overswing of competition. Well, he was down in Miami. I mean, anybody that's lived in Miami, I mean, South Beach, that whole thing. I mean, I would just blame it on right. South Beach. That's, that's yeah. pretty cool. So whatever place. year they lost to Dallas, that was the, that was the year. I think that happens in sports. Like, I was just reading an article in one of my old Sports Illustrates on, on Juju Schuster-Smith uh, this morning, actually. And, you know, he was talking about how he reached out to Antonio Brown, like, years ago when he was a young, like, college student. And was kind of going to this weird dynamics, which then I stopped reading the article because I don't really care about politics. But the point is, is, like, in sport, I think they tend to do that. But look at what one of the top performers does and then try to mirror it. In the military environment, we have so many top performers that I don't think you can look at one guy and be like, oh, Bob is doing this, so this is the best thing ever. I think we have so many guys that are at that top level, that, and they're pretty dialed in with themselves. Like they, know, they know when they're getting to that breaking point, but they still have to go out and do you know, what, what they need to do. I think that's where a lot of these programs, you know, the, the special operations community has been the best with it because they've had this human performance program for a long time. Now the conventional forces are moving to, I know the army has just stood up a program that's trying to model what has happened on the special operations side, you know, in the conventional forces side by bringing in these, these coaches and bringing in strength and conditioning specialists, bringing in performance dietitians, bringing in mental um, performance coaches to get them, to give them the tools that they need to kind of build up the entire military force, just not in the special ops community. So it's a little bit different, I think, Tex, than like what you see in sport, you know, not every, but they definitely feed off of each other. You know, if it works for one guy, then they'll give it a go, you know, like like the float pods, for example, or um, there's technology. I just was met with some people this weekend on blood flow restriction, you know, these little blood flow restriction devices and using that for training when they're in austere environments where they can't have access to weights and stuff. And can they use like based off the Katsu method, which I'm believe you're, you're like five years behind. We were designing BFR programs for guys that were deployed like five years ago. Yeah. We're yet. Well, we tested it in 2012. We have a publication that came out, I think. in. I think we were later. like 2011. Yeah, no, I, I was way before <laughs> that. No, I, I mean, seriously, well, we were doing no, like, like uh, the, the irony of this is um, I was at a PT clinic talking about Wade's army or charity. And the lady's like, have you ever heard of blood flow restricted training? I like looked at her and was like, have you? Yeah. And, I, and I realized that like now this is cutting edge stuff. But yeah, I mean, when we found like the guys were basically just doing body weight movements or had some, um, you know, strange and odd impl implements that the blood flow restricted training in, you know, austere environments worked tremendously. Right. And that, and we're, we, we, te we're testing on very fit active duty guys, but at the same time, we're like, it probably better for recovery too, or helping guys that are injured recover faster because you can increase that stress load on the muscle, that tension on the muscle without, without a lot of force, like sheer force from, you know, something else. So, um, anyways, I guess my point on that is like just practicing different recovery strategies or that's where the crosstalk in the, the community tends to happen. If it works well for one guy, then another operator, other people will try it, or different communities will try it. And if they're seeing the benefits and there's no harm, then they'll, then they'll follow suit, you know? So yeah, it's not like a LeBron situation where whatever he does, everyone else is going to do, you know? Right. So. Would, would you say that because you're based on the West Coast, the majority of teams that you work with are West Coast and, they, and that's where it kind of, um, you know, because, uh, you know, SEAL teams are divided into East and, East and West Coast. So I would sometimes wonder 
if uh, you know you guys work with both uh, both groups, or is it mainly primarily with the West Coast guys? Um, it's been primarily actually with the guys in Hawaii, to be honest with you. And um, so group three, and then we do work with group one, which is on the West Coast as well. And we're trying to get some things started with the East Coast. It's just because we're here in San Diego, it's easier to do stuff in San Diego. It's the same thing with the Marine Corps. Almost all of our work is at Camp Pendleton. But we're trying to set up cohorts or things that can be implemented out on the East Coast on both sides. So we are working um, actually and just been in discussions uh, with some of the guys on the East Coast to implement them. because So that way, our, the data sets that we're getting kind of represent the entire community, just not a subset of people. Because they'll, they'll tell you, and the Marines are the same, you know, they think there's differences between East and West Coast. And I think there might be just due to geography, environmental situations. But uh, so I think it's a good, it's good practice to try to get a rep- sample from both guys. But primarily... Um, our commands are weird because we can work with anybody, really. I've also worked with the Army, you know. So, it, but yeah. So, the, no. To answer your question, no, we don't just work with West Coast. It's kind of anybody that that um, has a question that they want answered. So, I think that's something else is we don't try to go in and tell them what to do. It's usually our research questions come from the community. Like they're the ones that are driving the research, not the other way around. Like they they have something they want tested, or they have something that they're interested in. And then we try to help collect the data to turn it back over to them. Because it, it doesn't make any sense for me to go in with a good idea, be like good idea fairy and tell them what they need to do. You know, they already I love the good idea fairy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right here, John. So. Nice to see you. <laughs> so Karen, I mean, you, you're, you're hit at all angles with trying to come up with shortcuts or these gimmicks and hacks. I feel like uh, you have the resources to do a lot of, don't talk to Luke like that. I'm right here, John. (laughs) Uh, You have the resources to do a lot of analysis and determine, all right, so this is valid and this one, maybe not so much. We don't have to get into that. But what I'm curious is all, all under the umbrella of really empowering the performance of either the tier one operator or whoever you're working with. Right. So what has are there any observations you have you know and i i suspect a lot of it comes back to the fundamentals right just make sure you're taking care of the fundamentals and then we can kind of stack these little things on top what for these guys what is the most important fundamental practice you know whether it is recovery or like meditation or you know, like what fundamentals are most often overlooked within the tactical community sleep <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, like that's our biggest gap in, in our, in our, any of our studies is, you know, one, cause guys, no offense, men don't like to wear things at night when they sleep. They don't want to wear a watch. They don't want to wear a ring. You definitely don't want to wear something on your head, you know? And so trying to capture sleep data and a lot of them just have, a, and they tell us this, they just have poor sleep. And so, and I don't think people appreciate the power of sleep. I think more and more it's coming around now, like how critical it is for recovery. But for so long, people just kind of blew off sleep or they, they told themselves the story, I have bad sleep. I always am a bad sleeper. So they just believe it rather than focusing on better sleep hygiene practices um, and correcting their, correcting their sleep, you know? And so I think that's one of the, the biggest miscon- or the biggest things, you know, they all eat really well. They all have um, access, like I said, to the... Um, great performance dietitians that can help them and give them tools. They're pretty on top of some of that stuff, but I think sleep is one of the ones that isn't given enough um, 
attention. Is there any, um, is there any trends or anything that you've observed that would, um, be like a determining factor or something like, Hey, these guys all poor sleep. And then we did X, Y, and Z. And now these guys have better sleep, like takeaways. Um, not that I've done personally. Like I have a colleague that's a sleep physiologist and right now she's been studying all the wearables, for example, uh, to figure out she's publishing it soon. So I'll let you guys know when that comes out. Um, she's tested them in our sleep lab against, you know, PSG and to determine which, which commercially available device is best for sleep and doing that. But as far as interventions for sleep go, there's none that I know of that, that I've done, um, that are targeted towards them. We all tell them the same things. Um, you know, we both have a mutual friend, Kirk Farsley, who does a lot of the work in sleep and, you know, they all know what they need to do. It's just a matter of implementing those practices. We all know our rooms need to be dark. We all know we need to have cool, um, cool sleeping environment. We all need, know we don't need to have 30, don't look at your phone, anything before half hour before you go to bed. You know, we know all of these things that need to be done. It's just a matter of like whether people actually practice them. Like in my house and my friends know this, like I'm a, sleep Nazi. Like I have to sleep. I need my sleep. I make my kids sleep. People come over to stay with me. They have to go to bed on time. Like it's something that I think is really critical. And so, but, it, but I mandate it. And even so when you have I like, travel, yeah, I was wondering what's the bedtime in the, in the Kelly house. I tell my, I tell my kids now they need to go to bed at nine. They're 11 and 14. And by the time they finish fucking around, you know, with water and brushing teeth and all that, it's usually about nine 30. That's no, way too late. Them, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. 7.45 is wand down time in the summer's household. Yeah, That's when the yellow lenses come out. I have, a, I have a tray of yellow glasses. All my guests are allowed to put them on. We walk around. We turn off all the blue lights. Uh, we, so you're telling me that, that the packies wear your yellow glasses. They and... thought I was a fucking crazy person. I'm like, of all the things... You think I'm aware, like, this is it, wearing yellow lenses at night? Like, did, that's not a real thing. I'm like, blue light did in, they wear, interference disrupts sleep. That's like a real fucking thing. So you guys wear blue? Sorry, you're actually wearing yellow lenses? All the time. Even, like, sparky baby lenses? Yeah, just <laughs> smash them on the baby. She, she has actually a, a helmet that she uh, wears. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with lenses. Lens. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't worn any lenses, but I definitely, you know, practice good going to sleep habits and even when I travel that's our thing is I travel last week I was in Europe you know I leave on Sunday for the east coast so so I'm all over the place the first thing I do when I get to my hotel room is I unplug the clocks I turn the tv things upside down so there's no blue lights because I need a dark yeah towel towel under the door I make my room ready for sleep yeah towel over it you know well we well we do that but we don't like listening devices usually the rooms are bugged like Mm -hmm. you know yeah oh normally we just go out and drink you're talking about bed bugs when we travel Bed bugs. Well, that too. You can have a few toddies at night to help you go to sleep, but Ooh, that toddy. also disrupts your sleep if you have too many. So, how many toddies is too many toddies? <laughs> well, it's inter-individual. Okay, so I'm, I'm averaging not. like a baker's dozen. Okay. <laughs> You're the only guy I know that wrote on our uh, team calendar about the sale at the liquor store. It's a great sale. <laughs> like all of a sudden, I'm like, what's this? Like uh, Twin Liquors annual sale, Dollar Days. <laughs> And we also have Oztoberfest Aust- on our team calendar and St. Patrick's Day 2020. We're already planning. <laughs> 2021 is also uh, on there. Yeah, uh, St. Patrick's Day is kind of an institution around here. I know. We have Oktoberfest starting this weekend. And I'm like, it's not even October yet. So. Well, Oktoberfest is always in September. That always threw us for a loop when you go to Munich. It's always like in starts in September. And I think like the last day is usually like the first day of, of October. Yeah, it's like a ramp up to peak in October. 
peak in October. Well, peak in uh, Halloween's like really big out here. So it's like ramping up to peak on Halloween or something. You, because yeah. you know San uh, do you live in like PB? Black River capital. Do you, uh, yeah. uh, you don't live in PB, do you? In Pacific Beach? Yeah, I live like off Mission Bay. So oh, but I okay. serve and, and live in, like I've lived in PB for most of my time here, like base of Mount Soledad, Wind and Sea, Bird Rock was, kind of I, area. I was going to say Halloween and PB is like an institution. Yeah. It still is, you know, it's, it's gotten a little less like, you know, they, the popo kind of cut a lot of the fun down, you know, since they killed drinking on the beach and a lot of other stuff, it's mellowed out a bit more. And, you know, OB, they don't let the marshmallow fights happen anymore. So they've kind of curbed the fun a bit, but, uh, Halloween is still usually a good time. Yep. So, so that's the last living rager. I remember, fourth, I remember 4th of I July. I wear a costume from the morning I wake up till I go to bed at night. My kids know it. Like I dress up all day. It's like the one day you can dress up. So and this year, my son has a football game. So I already warned him. I'm like, you know, I'm going to show up to your football game in my costume. It's like, okay. <laughs> Are you dressing as like the mascot? I'm a Viking this year. Huh? So no, I'm not a mascot. Their, do- their mascot's a dog, a pointer dog. Oh, that's so, a no. terrible mascot. Yeah. So what what are some previous years Halloween costumes? My daughter usually picks. So I've been victim to whatever my 11-year-old picks. So last year we were sharks. I was like, what were we? Yeah, we're sharks. We've been zombie brides. We've been pink, pink cupcake princesses, whatever the heck that, you know, she was like five at the time. Um, what else have we been? fairy when you're super girl yeah usually she's a girl so she picks all of our costumes this year i just put my foot down and said i'm gonna be a viking because my kids told me i should have been a viking back in the day and i was born too late so figured it's time to be nordic oh yes time to be nordic Uh, don't you already have your costume planned luke well i was gonna go lebowski but isn't that but i went with the chop but that's like your daily costume well (laughs) that's just like your opinion man (laughs) So now I'm sorry, thinking, we got derailed. Uh, second half, Brad Pitt Fight Club. Oh, oh. Yeah, where he's shooting at his imaginary friend. Wait, are you going to have like a fur coat on? No. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, can, can I borrow yours? Cash out. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I got a full length one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that full Tyler Durden yeah. had a no white shirt, claw tattoo. What's that, Karen? I said no shirt, just the fur coat. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's that's plan. Where uh, are you going to go out trick or treating? Um, probably not. I haven't had carb in three years. Who are you, what? John Anderson? <laughs> Jeez, that's a lie. You're going to have a carb and then have an insulin attack. I had literally had carbs this morning. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, carbohydrates are good. I just finished teaching my class last night about carbohydrate metabolism and going through all of it from a metabolic perspective on how you need carbohydrates to feed the Krebs cycle, to feed aerobic metabolism. And if you don't have it, you're not producing all those intermediates. Unless you're going to break down all your muscle protein, which isn't good either. But I'm fat adapted. So this is a great segue (laughs) for... Oh, Jesus. This is our great segue. I I fucking deal with this stuff. It's like, I, I mean, theoretically, you don't need a carbohydrate to survive. Like it's not an essential means like of life. Right, like there's no such thing as essential carb. It just makes the Krebs cycle a hell of a lot easier. But our but our body is designed, and this is what I was talking to my students about last night. Glucose is the the most tightly regulated blood glucose concentration is the most tightly regulated um, concentration in our body. Basically, you know, we dip low, we dip higher. Liberally, they make it. Yes, we can use alternate key uh, sources like ketones, but our ketones are made from our liver. So what I was teaching my students last night is like, 
we look at metabolism and muscle, we look at metabolism and liver. And then you have to think about what are those two different tissues and what are the function in their body? Muscle provides work, it makes energy, locomotion, that stuff. Whereas the liver, I've never seen a liver running down the street. Like, so the liver is there to actually process all of our fuels, clean out our system, but it's to make glucose, make ketones, process our fats. But you do need carbohydrates. And that's the biggest thing I, where my issue is some of the ketone diets, for example, is just looking at longitudinal studies, which I don't think anyone's done, and downregulation of glucose uptake into the brain. So over time, are you shutting down those components that are there to take up glucose into the brain? Because normally ketones is like a, a more of a survival mechanism, you know? So I would argue with you a little bit on whether carbohydrates are critical or not. I think they are very important. Yeah, but so you can live, you can live without consuming carbohydrates. You can't really con live without consuming fat. There is essential fats. Well, you're, yes, but you're in your body will make carbohydrates. Yes. Um, fat. Your but body like, will make yeah, carbohydrates. Assuming if you were locked in a cave for one year and you had to select one micro, one macronutrient, you'd probably select fat. You could probably survive a long time on like coconut yeah, oil. Yeah, because you have more calories. It's more bang for your buck. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more calories from fat. And then you from glycerol, the little backbone, you can make carbohydrate from glycerol you can make it from your fatty stores you know it's just the liver it's just got to work a little bit harder yeah and then for protein you just slowly but, eat your own but fingers for but for, oh, perform but for performance <laughs> like it, it just yeah, uh right, right. like i and you're i talking like minimally yeah, yeah. uh survival <laughs> like you're just yes you're tom hanks well, and Castaway eating if, coconuts correct. if um because it, it, like I remember Dr. Tom and I talked about this. He's like, you remember like in the 80s when like uh, all the bodybuilders were all like everybody was pretty jacked and looked good and everybody was pretty, you know, like looking pretty good. Um, he's like, everybody was crushing like a ton of carbohydrate. Like it was nothing for, you know, these guys to be eating three, four or five, 600 grams of carbohydrate and they were all pretty big. And then he goes, and then all of a sudden, like what happened? You know, there was this huge shift where now all of a sudden it was like, uh, you know, like uh, carbs are bad and this and. Well, just, fat got fat came on a comeback, and somebody around. had to be the like million. Atkins diet. What's that? Because you get fat diets, Atkins diet, South Beach diet, mm -hmm. whatever diet, you know. And so someone has a again a celebrity has some kind of amazing transformation, and then everyone shifts to that diet. I'm not going to name celebrities because I don't really care about them, but they there's certain ones that have yo-yoed over the years, and everyone keeps following these yo-yo trends, and I'm just like. How many times has this one person gained and lost weight, gained and lost like weight? Oprah? Like that, it, oh, it, Unbelievable. It, She's not naming so, celebs. I mean, but the point is, is like, don't, everybody's body works slightly different. Everyone's body's different. So I used to tell my, my people all the time, like, do what works for you, but you have to pay attention to what works for you. You know, like I eat a very carbohydrate heavy diet. I'm yeah, but you're also an endurance athlete. I do. I do a lot of and and work. we've also found um, historically through just the work that we've done that the leaner somebody is and the more uh, you know the lower percentage of body fat, the higher percentage of uh, lean body mass, the more carbohydrate they can process easily. Right. So I mean, it's it's kind of a um, you know like not to give a one size fits all answer, but I found that people that are twenty percent body fat cannot handle as much carbohydrate as somebody that's like five and six and seven percent body fat it's just yeah, you know, I would agree. yeah, yeah. It just kind of you know and then but then trying to give everybody a one size fits all um you know and i i did a console for a guy recently and he's like what's the goal i'm like to get you lean enough to where you can actually eat carbohydrates every day and he was right. like 
oh shit, that's great. I would love to be able to eat those. I'm like, well, then we got to lose some body fat and we got to get you fucking leaner. Right. And that's like the thing that we saw in obesity when I was in obesity research a lot. Like if you just get people to lose 20 to 30 pounds and you sort of reverse because they're metabolically not flexible. So we like the term flexibility in this context is going to be whether you can toggle between using carbohydrates and fats at the appropriate time, whether you're in a fasted state or a fed state. And theirs was almost reversed. And so they had dysfunction at the mitochondrial level where they're not able to process their fuels efficiently. So they're storing when they should be metabolizing and they're metabolizing, they should be storing. And so they weren't able to flip back and forth between those two macronutrients. And so I think the more flexible someone is, and this is in all aspects of life, especially with their metabolism, then the healthier they are. They can process carbohydrates, they can process fats, they can process proteins in an adequate amount, you know, and um, it's the body weight or you think it's like the adipose tissue? Um, like, is it like the, I, I, cause I, I always wonder if it's like a chicken or an egg thing. Like all of a sudden they lose 20 to 30 pounds, which for most people is like eight to 10% of their body weight. All of a sudden it fixes all this metabolic, um, disaster. It's happening. Their blood work looks better. I always wonder if it's like the, the body weight, the load, if it's the, I mean, or maybe it's a combination of everything. Like now all of a sudden there's less adipose tissue. There's less uh, hormonal changes due to excess body fat, which we know is, uh, can be pretty right. dramatic. So well, I think it's both because there is a the term, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's like adiposopathy, which is like sick fat. And that's where there's a line of research that was done, I think it was back in like 2008, 9, 10, that looked at sick fat versus healthy fat. And so you can have an individual that's overweight, but be perfectly healthy and have no metabolic disease, but they look fat versus someone that could be at the same quote, size but have sick fat and have all kinds of metabolic disease because their fat cells or adipose tissue cells aren't healthy. And, you know, adipose, we used to think fat was just an inert substance, but it's actually a metabolic organ. It's an endocrine producer. So it has your two adipokines or leptin and aponectin, but it also produces a lot of inflammatory proteins and signaling proteins that crosstalk with muscle and with liver. And so I think to answer your, your not to answer, but not answer your question is, it, there's a lot of different factors that go into play and losing weight. It's just not the number per se, but it's actually, if you can shrink some of the individual adipocytes, which are the true adipose cells, because you, you have to remember in fat, you have adipocytes, you have stromovascular cells, you have all these other components that make up that tissue. It's what's the active elements within that tissue and what are they producing? So if you can turn around and rectify some of that missignaling, misfiring that's going on, then you can start to reverse disease um, and, and be healthier. It just takes time. That's a, you know, I'm not against Western medicine, but I feel like people are kind of lazy where you can, turn, you can turn around disease through diet, through exercise, through proper nutrition. You don't need to have um, a drug or a weight loss pill. And, you know, when my doctorate was, is in lipid metabolism. And I used to remember my advisor, we're up at USC, she field calls all the time on what's the magic pill? What's this? And she's like, eat less and exercise, click and like hang up the phone, you know? And, and she's Canadian. So she's a little, you know, a little rough there, but it's true. You know? we, we always so. find the Canadians to be extremely apologetic and very uh, polite. Well, yeah. Eat less, exercise. Sorry. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they apologize first. No, I'm oh. sorry, but you need to, uh, yeah. Eat less and exercise more, you know? And so, 
It's true. People just eat too much food. I mean, look at our society. I think it's like one in three people are obese right now. So, but I mean, uh, yeah, you know, we, I mean, we've talked like, um, uh, as I get into this, I mean, we argue and it's super fucking hard that, uh, be like, Hey man, like regardless of like what you believe, the law of thermodynamics is a law. And that if you consume right. more calories, then what you're able to burn over time, like it just, it doesn't seem like it's that hard. Like, and, uh, the other one is when we get in with people like, Oh, I want to lose weight. I'm like, you gotta be hungry. Uh, like I've yep. never seen anybody that's had like a, you know, like ask any bodybuilder that's gotten in shape for a show if, Oh yeah, I was never hungry. Like those dudes legitimately fucking starve themselves. Like that's how they get I'm into that shape. It's, you know, I always say it's like, you don't, everyone is like eat to live, live to eat or whatever, you know, like I, I always tell people like, I feel, I eat to fuel myself for my next workout. Like I, I mean, I like food, but I'm not some, I, you know, I used to see this. I used to train people, before, well, I had this hard workout. I deserve a double bacon cheeseburger with avocado. It's like, oh, really? You deserve that? Like, and then you're wondering why you don't lose weight. And so, this is actually why I stopped training people because I get so frustrated on asking, like, oh, what'd you have last night for dinner? A whole pizza. Oh, okay. You know, like, there's no discipline, no structure. And yeah, to to be in shape, to be healthy, a lot of times you you are hungry. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. But I think there's also a lot of misinformation out there, you know, as far as diets and exercise and what's the correct amount or, you know, nowadays it's like, you can love your child no matter what they are. But you know, when I was in obesity research, again, we had kids that we worked with that were 10 years old that had heart disease, liver disease, diabetes. I'm like, you're setting your child up for a life of failure. I'm sorry. And it's, I don't agree with that. You can love your child no matter which way they look, but keep them healthy. It, you know, that's just my own opinion. You know, I just think it's it's kind of sad when you see a children child that has no say in it and has all these diseases already. Yeah, know? but uh, like, and Luke, I'll give you this one piece of parenting advice. Like, um, and smack them with and, a sack of oranges. And and I know this sounds weird, <laughs> but like, um, and I'll just give a little analogy. Like, we took our dogs down to the river uh, recently, and as we were walking down like the ramp, this girl, obviously, like probably a new dog owner, just like like how she was like dealing with her dog, and it was obviously a rescue from the pound, which is you know awful in itself. But as we're walking up, all of a sudden she starts freaking out. Like like my dog's dog aggressive and she doesn't know how to handle the dog. And like, uh, like, so like in my dogs uh, who are down to play and down to fight and like, they're just well socialized. I've had dogs and there's, you know, pretty good pit bulls. So we walk by and the dog lunges and uh, my dogs just literally jump right over and walk the other side. She was like apologizing. And so as I was walking back up to the car, I talked to her and uh, she's like, Oh, I don't know what to do in this. And I was like, love your dog enough to give it some fucking discipline. Like, right. that's like the, uh, the funny thing where like people are like, Oh, I don't want my dog to sleep in a crate. And I'm like, actually uh, creating a dog is been crate training. them is probably the single best thing you can do for them. So I think like people confuse crate this, train like, the baby. Got it. No, but like as a parent, like you owe it to the child, like love oh, them yeah, enough yeah. to like to instill discipline and like be able to provide all these things and stay on top that just allowing little emotional beings to just be free and emotional is fucking not loving them. That's just being a lazy no, fucking I, I parent like, and a lazy dog owner. My kids are both. I've raised them in a lot of structure. People think, oh, I want them to be free thinking. It's like they can be free thinking, but they want to know what to expect and have some structure. And it's the same discipline. Like my dogs are rescue as well and he's from afghanistan like found in a cave so like a feral rescue and i still i've had him for five years now and i still train him but i can hold him with like a pinky on my leash and he'll listen to what i say and he, there'll be a dog freaking out like this morning there was a husky that was losing its mind jumping the owner couldn't control it 
And my dog, if I just give, I, I very calmly say, Rocco, no, that's all I have to say. And he just, he doesn't even react, but it's because I've spent all that yeah. time. And even to this day, I still train him. You, know, just to, you have to reinforce it. And I was talking to a new parent. So this is again, another good new parent tip. When you give your child a threat, like, hey, if you don't calm down, we're leaving the zoo, you better leave the zoo if they don't calm. And I've had to carry my son like a sack of potatoes over my shoulder out of the zoo before because he was being a turd. And I told him if he didn't stop it, we're going to leave. And you have to follow through on your threats or... Yeah, no, I, I, I've had, uh, I've done the same thing when we've been someplace cool, like the San Diego Zoo or one of those places like the uh, the Animal Walk. And right. um, but like, yeah, they're there and their kid starts acting up and you're like, you're like, man, if they don't calm down, we're going to have to leave. And then you're all of a sudden like, fuck, I don't really want to leave. But I also don't want to be uh, uh, have these kids know that they got to beat me. I'll be like, I'm happy to leave. Like we pulled that shit at Disneyland. I'm like, God damn it. I'm like, don't make me leave this damn place. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you drop all this cash and you're like, well, I got to follow through, you oh, know. So. That, that's why you save that for like, uh, like the, like the last thermonuclear button where you're like, God damn it. If I got to get out, I'm going to be bummed. But yeah. speaking of thermonuclear, I do want to say that when you said Newton's law of thermodynamics, that's the first thing I say to my students, like this semester, I say, what's the Newton's law, first law of thermodynamics? And they stare at me. I'm like, yeah, energy can't be created or destroyed. And that's like the, the guiding principle. I always tell everyone and, the other thing I tell them, and I'll ask you guys this, when are you in perfect homeostasis? When like are you death. perfectly at equilibrium? Death. Death. Yeah. And that's the other thing. It's just like, you're always talking about death. I'm like, well, that's all there really is. There's life and there's death. And all that's this it. crap in between is just noise, you know? And so it's, I was glad you mentioned that because I, I, I use that a lot in my classes too. No, I, 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 uh, I did a bunch of nutrition and I, I had this desire to do something more medically based when I was in college, but just like the labs were in the afternoon. So I had to become a English major writer. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I did a, a ton of nutrition and like did a lot of the science stuff. And I just remember like my professor standing up there and talking about like the law of thermodynamics and the idea of like, Hey, <laughs> like, like, uh, for whatever you're going to hear, just, just know that, you know, calories matter and a calorie is just a unit, a measure of like of energy and like they do matter regardless of what you say. Like if you, you know, if, if you lay in bed all day and they've done studies where they overfeed people and keep them sedentary and that's exactly how that stuff happens. And I think the clip that they showed was from seven. Oh like, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, gluttony. Yeah. I just watched that movie with my kids and then, then my daughter had to sleep with me and I, cause she's like, that makes this sense. is a creepy movie. I'm like, it is. I, I haven't seen that movie in years. Yeah. Watch it on VHS. I still have it on a VHS. If you can believe it. The fact that you have a VHS player is more What's important. in the box. <laughs> I have all my old VHS tapes and it's, it's so we watched it. You're part of the, the gluttony part. Is that oh, the, the one yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, he's like, what do you, yeah. I mean, that's to me like, First of all, probably uh, what a way to go um, to this day. One of the best movies I've ever seen. And the one movie that was so fucking different than any other movie. I feel like every other movie fits within kind of the same like formula Mm -hmm. other than that movie. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was a good movie. Yeah, it's fucking real good. I remember not being fond of it because it used the number seven instead of a V. Just as a kid. I don't know why that fucking that fucked me off. Why? I have no clue. I'm a crazy person. They were creative because That's they were creative because they were the seven mortal sins, not the five mortal sins. No, in the title, S E seven E N. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's yeah. Cheap trick. I'm not into that type of stuff. I was a Steven Seagal guy. 
<laughs> I wanted it plain and simple. What was your favorite Seagal? I'll tell you what my favorite one was. You remember when he goes it. into the pool hall and he puts the pool cue in oh, yeah. the fucking towel oh, yeah. and then is just yeah. crashing those dudes' faces with so that? I have his full IMDb have, up. Okay, yeah. Pull, let me see. I'll tell you right now. Above the Law. Above the Law was his first movie. That was a question. At the He's got a lot of, of fucking movies. Yeah, why yeah, wouldn't he? I know. The Patriot? I thought Ooh, Mel Gibson was in ground. that. I exit wounds. Was in that. So exit wounds is when things really started to reveal themselves. Ah, he when was it in. To get really bad. That was with him and Fitty, him and Fifty Cent. No, DMX or D- DMX. That's right. That's right. What you really want? I gotta say, Hard to Kill is probably because it's the first. It's his first movie. There's. I can't believe he's made this many movies. Yeah. So we don't think he's got a movie with four words in the title. <laughs> Everything's so, like one, two, three. Well, obviously, he made a movie called The China Salesman. Against the dark, the oh, the keeper. So, so you know uh, who has a great Seagal story is Jesse Gray. So Jesse Gray, when he first moved to L.A., he he was working for a telephone company, and he got called on a uh, on a call and had to go out and do tech support at Steven Seagal's house. And he said Steven Seagal was sitting out at the pool with like a table and had a phone line and a landline on his like little table and was sitting out there. And he had to go there and like basically like troubleshoot why his phone wasn't working. And uh, it was because it was unplugged. But he said it was weird. He had all these like Asian gals in like lingerie and he was like basically just sitting out by the pool in like some weird kimono outfit. Uh, Jesse's listening to this. Jesse, send us an email with the story. We got to read it. Hey, but if you're Steven Seagal, then I guess you can have a bunch of Asian ladies in a kimono or whatever, right? He got in trouble for uh, sex trafficking and for like, uh, like, um, uh, like something where it was like sex trafficking and like imprisonment where he was bringing these girls over and basically like locking them in in his house. So his first film, Uh, Above the Law, he wasn't? This is not true? He was not above the law. Oh, that's like a joke. I'm glad Karen yeah. kept up with that. Well, you know, he's not yeah. <laughs> Italian and he's not Japanese. But if you notice in all these I movies, he kind of evolves into these roles where he's, yeah, he's neither. He's like a martial arts guy. Mm-hmm. I, the I, most yeah. prestigious and de- uh, lethal. According to him. Martial artists of 80s action movies until Van Damme came <laughs> right. on the scene and we jumped ship. Yeah, but you know, Van Damme, uh, he was very, uh, very <laughs> like. His uh, only movie is 1988 in the 80s. Well, that's it. <laughs> uh, dude, he, I, I know he was like uh, hugely like, uh, um, like with shit talk, uh, Van Damme and all the other guys. Why? That's why Seagal's not in the Expendables. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. It's cold-blooded shit. <laughs> Could you imagine if Seagal was in the Expendables? No. Oh, no. <laughs> that movie. Uh, yeah. Let's get a bunch of old dudes together. and. Fucking... Yeah, Exactly. I think oh, Sylvester Stallone. Who else is in there? There is oh, every, uh, Dolph Lundgren. Everybody. I mean, Ronda Rousey, Lundgren, Wesley Chuck Snipes, Norris. Chuck West Norris. Chuck. Literally everybody. Chuck Norris. I forgot about him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I used to love all those movies too. What else we got? Oh, I do Sorry, have one I question. Have... Expanding yeah. this concept of metabolic flexibility that we discussed with normal health individuals. How about applying it to the warfighter crowd? Well, I think because they're already super healthy, they already are metabolically flexible, you know, pretty much. And so I think it's like it's a really metabolic flexibility comes in state when you usually are people that are unhealthy or in a disease population. So I think the issue would only be is if they sway towards one diet or another. And we've had guys that, um, that we've worked with that claim to be on a ketogenic diet. And we also measure ketones, for example, in their blood. 
and I'll measure it just like with a finger prick. It's not exact, but I'm like, you're not in ketosis. Like, yes, I am. And I'm like, no, to be in ketosis, you usually have to be either at 0.5 or 500 millimolar or one, and you're at like 0.2, you know? And so they think a lot of times that they're in a certain state and they're not necessarily- A 12 pack of beer last night, I'm totally in ketosis. No, I, I, uh, it, it's something we ran into recently was this idea of like what I call voluntarily, voluntary metabolic inflexibility. The idea that you're going to take a healthy individual that can eat a diverse diet of foods and then all of a sudden, because of like folklore or something, and this was another issue we talked about, um, I'm kind of tired of like metabolically healthy people looking at somebody who's like diseased. Well, like pathology, like, Hey, like, uh, I have all these gut issues. I mean, like, um, Michaela Peterson's a great example. Um, you know, she was extremely, you know, had all these autoimmune issues, goes on the carnivore diet and like has a, like a dramatic recovery. Uh, they run blood work on her and her blood work looks stellar compared to what it was. And so, then you have guys that are high performers, you know, guys that are, you know, young, healthy, you know, door kickers. And all of a sudden they see this and they think like they're trying to extrapolate like a diet that might fix somebody's pathology and trying to extrapolate it out for performance. Exactly. And they're creating and this voluntary metal inflexibility, which seems yeah. crazy to me. And, and that's my huge, that's my biggest issue with any of these kind of diets is that if you, everything has been done and studied in a disease population. And then you're trying to take something from a disease population and translate it into a healthy population. And until you have, you know, metrics that show that it can help in a healthy population. So one of the first studies, let's say on ketones in humans was like, well, not one of the first studies, but one of them performance back in 2016, it was published in Cell Metabolism. And they did all these, it was on cyclists, they did all these time trials. When you actually, it was a very well done study. When you actually look at the performance gains, I think it's like 1% or 2%. So in a cyclist, a time trial cyclist or an Olympic sprinter or something, yeah, that's the difference between gold medal and last place. 100% agree on increasing that performance. But going back to your kind of question text, and you're looking at it in an operational context, especially just like a generic operator, and I'm not just saying special ops, but even the conventional forces or whatever, 1%, does that what does that mean? Like, what does a 1% improvement in physical performance mean for a guy that's hiking 20 miles with a kid on, you know, is that really that important? You know, if you're looking at cognitive function or you're looking at something else then yeah, that might be, you know, the difference because again, it's context. Yeah. You have a 0.2 second latency on a trigger pull. That's the difference between life and death. But if you have an extra, you know, 30 seconds on a 20 mile hike, does that, does that really matter? So I think the important thing is where people forget is what context are you using the information in? And that's, that's my biggest issue too, is just people need to really contextualize how they're interpreting the data and making sure it fits with what, where they want to apply it. If it's a very like short, robust run or some kind of transit between two different areas, then that's one thing. But if it's a long hike, that's another thing. So kind of getting around the metabolic metabolic flexibility component is that I think we really need to make sure that any information we provide out is stuff that is contextualized for whatever scenario or situation that they're going to be using it in. And so I'm not saying that maybe ketone esters have a, a role at, at, for XYZ, but not for ABC. 
Well, the, the other one, too, is uh, we were running into a lot of guys that were doing extensive fasting. And uh, right. the fasting thing seemed weird to me. And my comment, to, um, and I've said this over and over, is like if we're at home and you guys are in a training environment and the idea is to increase performance and put on muscle and size and strength, um, I need you to eat for what you're going to do. And if you're in a uh, fed, like uh, have something, you know, in the body uh, state, you're going to have a higher level of like, you know, um, if you're trying to lay down more muscle and performance, strength, whatever it looks like, it looks better in a fed state than a fasted state. Uh, but I said, if you're in your training environment, like your SPP, your, you know, specific, there's going to be situations where you're going to be hungry. So I would expect that you would do some training in a, fa in a fasted state, because like, let's say, Hey, I haven't had an opportunity to eat for 10 hours. You need to be able to train into that. But I'm like, if you're walking in the weight room and your goal is to, you know, recover, um, performance, like, Hey, I need to develop more power, more strength, uh, more muscle, whatever it is. Um, the studies are pretty conducive or conclusive that you will gain more muscle if you have eaten opposed from a fasted deal. Right. And that's the same thing. I see a lot of guys that are on this intermittent fasting because I think there was a book that came out. I haven't read it. Obviously, it's called Alpha Male, I want to say, or something that I think alluded to the fact that if you're How's that book? Oh, here we go, um, If you have to fucking, one, read a book that's, that's called Alpha Male to try to figure out how to be an alpha male. I don't know. You're not a fucking alpha male. And, and, and here's the other thing. I don't even know what the fuck this means. This is like some fucking Hollywood uh, internet bullshit that people fucking came up with. Like, oh, I see this shit. I'm like, oh, God. But that's that's so I think that's where there's someone that said if you fast, your testosterone goes up. Or there was some. It, no, what they were saying is like that the fasting water. ramps up growth hormone. But the problem right. is it's they figured out that the growth hormone is not usable in the same way that we think it is. Got it. Yeah. So I, that's where I've been asked about it a lot is from that perspective on the intermittent fasting. But I'm with you. Like, I believe in like periodizing your nutrition to get ready for whatever the environment you're in. And there's there's strategies that people can do. It's just like you periodize a workout. You can periodize nutrition. Like if you're going into, say, like we're talking about being fat adapted, for example, you can train yourself to be fat adapted. And you can also train yourself not to be, you know, you can train yourself in a starvation state or a fasting state. If that's the way you're going to be operating or training or um, competing in, you know, and it's good to, to mimic that. It's just like they say, don't ever do something on race day that you haven't done before. You always yeah, want to no, you gotta do it in training before you go into an event. And I've seen that when I used to race, people um, would just take whatever they have on the race course. And then next thing you know, they're in and out of the porta potty because whatever it is on that race course isn't what their body's used to having in their system. And it's rectum, you know? No, I thought I'm endurance athletes just went. You know, like you're running, you're running, you're running. You like, got to drop a log. You just like kind of drop two? it. Yeah. You in just your go. pants? Yeah. Google it. Uh, There's a Google image, so that means everybody does it. That's a very individual, though. Uh, that feels... <laughs> that's uh, well, the... Um, yeah, the... Yeah, the the fasting thing just kind of just I mean, man, that that really, um I, I ironically I was on a dude's podcast. And I think it was the very first one he did. Uh, he hits me up. He's like, "Hey, I'm doing this great podcast," and he sends me over, and it was a podcast about fasting. And, um, like he starts asking me and he tries to go into the weeds on it. And I was like, man, at the end of the day, when we looked at fasting pretty extensively, it just looked like a really cool way to do caloric restriction. And if the goal right. is to like, you know, like lose body weight and to do something up and you don't have the mental fortitude to like stick to a diet plan, then just reduce the window of exposure for eating. Like, Hey, um, we found, uh, one of my clients is having a, a ton of inflammation within the gut and is having all these issues. We found that like, if I close down the window of exposure from like, instead of 12 hours of eating down to like six or seven or even three, you know, whatever it is, 
he would he did better because it was less exposure to the food and right. uh, less activity of the bacteria in yeah. the gut. Yeah. So uh, so there's yeah. there's kind of a use for everything, but then but looking again, at, disease, sick, yeah. overweight. Yeah, and they you know, and that's and now all of a sudden that he lost a bunch a bunch of it, he feels a lot better and everything works a lot better. So it just um, what I see with fasting too is also resetting your hunger. Like most people aren't in tune. I talk to this about my students too. It's, most people aren't in tune with their hunger, Mac. You know, their hunger. They like, oh, I wake up in the morning, I need to eat breakfast. Oh, it's this time I need to eat lunch. It's like if you actually eat when you're hungry, but if you don't know what hunger feels like, then that's where I suggest like fasting sometimes is good. So now you know what hunger feels like. So you know, like, hey, now it's time to eat. And not the other thing that I also think is funny is people have to eat at certain times of the day. I'm like, I eat at whatever time of the day I'm hungry. Sometimes I eat at 11 o'clock at night before I go to bed because I'm hungry and I can't sleep when I'm hungry. And I think it's just, it's total caloric intake over the course of the day. But then again, that's something that works for me. And I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I think fasting is good in the sense of getting back in touch with true hunger so that people know when to eat and then they know when they're full also, you know. Luke doesn't know when he's full. Yeah, well, FTO gene. Well, it's usually after about four baskets of chips. <laughs> twelve, uh, twelve claws. Uh, twelve white claws. Uh, duck. Enchiladas. I don't know what, if you what kind of eater you are, but I have. Uh, I've never seen anybody eat like Luke. Like it's fucking. Like I am I'm the champion uh, of the world. I am not a fu- like. I can't eat a lot of food. Like I like. There's no fucking way. Like he said. Like how big was that burrito you crushed? Six pounds. Uh, I think it was seven. Yes. Rated us at seven. We didn't actually weigh it, though. But so they brought over, we went to this burrito challenge. El Tapiac. El, El Tapiac burrito <laughs> challenge. And what was it in like? At 30 minutes. Yeah, 30. Oh, no, no, they, there was no time limit. No, I thought, one. no, there was an hour, I think. Maybe. And Luke ate my burrito and his burrito. That's what I did. In like 20 minutes. It was fucking was unreal. It milk involved? When you come to San Diego, there, there's a place here. It's called the Broken Yoke. Do you remember that? You ever heard yeah. of the Broken Yoke, John? Yeah, yeah. I think they have a, an omelet challenge. It's like a 12 egg. He crushed it. He done that. We did a similar one in Utah, and they okay. bring it over, and this fucking guy smashes it, and then like. I'm fucking tapping out like halfway through and Luke's like, uh, I got that picture. Uh, that. Yeah. Just slide that right over here. Uh, it's, it's fucking, <laughs> I, I think I did eat. Yeah. Food. And then you fucking ate mine. And the lady comes over and she's like, Oh God, you're not allowed to help him. I'm like, I'm, I'm, the, fucking, uh, I'm awful. There were in San Antonio. When we went to that, that spot on the river walk, there was a, there was like eat, get your lunch for free. And I'm like, number one, I'm not that hungry, but I am pretty cheap. <laughs> So like no, I did have like this moment out. where I'm like, should I just fucking eat this fucking thing? It's like big. Uh, it had to be a burrito. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go back and I'll crush that. El Tepiac burrito. College, my friend and I we shared. There's a place in PB. Have you ever? Do you ever go to Felipe's Pizza? Yeah, in PB, yeah. John. Yeah. They have this really thick crust, like deep dish, like Chicago pan pizza. And one of our friends in college bet my my friend Betsy, who's just as thin as I am, to eat this like extra large pizza for twenty bucks. And we're like, he said he'd pay for the pizza. And give us 20 bucks. And so we did. We crushed this whole pizza just for ended up being $10 each. By the end of the day, we just split 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, I think some people can, I eat a lot of food. Most people don't think I do, but I eat a ton of food. I think some people just have an ability to process food a lot faster or yeah. I, than others, that's you know? Me. No, I just find my stomach, I just get full real fast. Yeah. I, I the, like the most pain I've ever been in wasn't even a food challenge. It was like, my buddy Randy in high school used to have us over for the WWF pay-per-views and I was working at pizza hut. So I supplied the fucking pizzas and it was like the, remember the pizza hut stuffed crust yeah. right. with cheese in the crust. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I oh. ate myself a stuffed crust and drank two liter of Mountain Dew. 
Oh, y'all uh, hopped up a Mountain Dew, huh? I'll tell you what. It was like in the mi- in maybe 15 minutes. And, uh, you know, I'm like 14, 15 years old or so. Well, I had to be 16. I was driving. And, like, talk about metabolic confusion. Like, I didn't know if I was wired or tired or dying or what, but I just, like, laid there for an hour sweating. <laughs> that was, like, sounds like the first time we drank uh, vodka Red Bulls. Could be. And we had about a fucking yeah. dozen of them. And I'm like, I'm so hammered, but I'm so wired. Yeah, it's like, it, it's a, I imagine it'd be what, like, what a python feels like. Should they have eaten... Someone who was drinking vodka Red Bull all night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they start digesting it and they're like, fuck. Uh, did you see the nature's metal where that python had eaten that deer? And then they came up and what will happen is pythons, if they feel that they're going to be like attacked, what they'll do is they'll throw the food up to like escape. Oh. And uh, so there was on nature's metal, uh, this python ate a fucking deer and then it regurgitated the deer and took off. And it had to be uh, a 70, 80 pound deer. That this no thing ate. And I'm like, that could eat like a, a small child. Mm-hmm. What, yeah, there was, I think it was a python introduced into Florida. Yeah. And then just grew to 30 feet long. And it, not natural rivals with the gators there. <gasps> python versus alligator? Would size yeah, them up and, and no, start I- eating them. But the problem was the gator would get in there and still be alive and claw its way through. So you had all these... <laughs> Just carcasses of giant pythons with their guts ripped open because the alligator escaped once they were inside. Alligator versus python. Because they're not natural enemies. No. Well, no, yeah. They, yeah. You saying so anaconda meets it. I had a six foot python, but it would eat rats and rabbits. So, but it, it was pretty intense to say. Like, we also had a 12, so I had a six foot and then a red tail, and then my friend had a 12 foot Bernie, a big one that yeah, Burmese was python. in high school. And we feed it these big rabbits all the time and carry it around. But so you said feeding a small child, look at some of these rabbits used to feed this thing. And I was like, oh, it could easily eat a little baby if someone left their Kinda baby Kind of reminds there. me of ro- uh, Road Trip. <laughs> Are you here for the feeding? <laughs> <laughs> You're fucking in my head. <laughs> well, my snake never had a cage. Like, I had a cage that it actually was trained to go to the bathroom in its cage, but I let it roam around. My roommate hated it. Karen, you're fucking crazy. Because it was... You know, six feet, and we get caught up in the couch, and they get scared. What and you know, um, I brought it to class with me when I was in college, and uh, it got out once in this huge lecture hall. You, and you know when it lays screaming. down like, next oh, to you, and, and, and I went down and got. When it lays yeah. down next to you and tries to lengthen out, that it's sizing you up to eat you. It's not getting. It's too skinny. Mine wasn't like that big. It wouldn't be able to eat me. It was like a you know. A little, That's what it wants you to think. Yeah, it's lulling you into a false sense of security. Yeah, you wake up and you're half your arms eaten, your foot. God you never know. It. You'd have to fight like the third monkey on the ark, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or like I the third, it. like the third penguin. There it is. The third penguin. Classic penguin rhetoric. Our our joke was that uh, somewhere there's people that believe that two penguins came and got on the ark. We thought that they actually jogged, but they actually swam from Antarctica. Oh, oh God! God, a good joke. It, it, it is. Good joke. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I think of penguins, I think of the Penguins of Madagascar, the kids' movie. I don't know if your kids have watched those movies. Yeah, we do like that one. Love them, and they were funny. Like they're actually funny little penguins. So yeah, we watched Happy Feet. We've seen a lot of penguin movies. Yeah, but don't interesting. Worry. Don't worry. High exposure to penguin animation. Uh, don't they, worry. There are seventeen different types of penguins. Don't worry, Luke. High you level have penguin readiness. You have Luke, all. We have to watch Penguins of Madagascar. They're actually funny because they're like a whole little. Don't worry. Luke, you have all, of the kids you have all this in your future. 
They're yeah. going to go through a Disney thing, and it's going to be awesome. See, Karen, what, what's curious about this conversation is there's a troll account on Instagram that's penguin-themed that has been oh, attacking a, myself. There's a macaroni penguin. And McQuilkin, and we don't know who this troll, anonymous troll is, but we, there's high suspicion now with all this uh, penguin rhetoric that first is John. First of all, the penguin attacks me. John's, John's secretly a penguin. And I, I have a feeling that it's Luke, Luke Summers is the premier penguin in strength and conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. ing. I'd like to. I'd like to be that person. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not. I think it's you. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, the accountant definitely makes me laugh, so. Anything else, McQuoke? Yes, actually. A very, two important questions. Number one, have you done the O course out in San Diego? Maybe. Or Coronado, excuse me. Maybe. What's Coronado? the Coronado? What? what? Go on. There's How is certain, this regula- certain regulations on uh, doing the O course and things like that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, neither have we, but if we did. I have. Luke hmm. smashed me. Yeah, I did it. Did you go high wire or low wire? Yeah, but uh, see, a lot of those things you have to remember, it's all about how you can manipulate your body. Mm-hmm. People think obstacle courses are a lot about strength, but like spider wall. Yeah. It's like if you can, you know, one, having grip strength, but also flattening yourself and maneuvering. And a lot of those things we used to do in... Uh, so back in the day with adventure racing first started, there was, so Balance Bar had a series, um, got Subaru had a series, and there was another race series, I can't think of who it was, but a lot of their obstacle, their courses were before obstacle course racing, the Spartan races and all that crap started. And so we used to do the old spider walls. We used to have to take our bike apart and stick it through things or reassemble. And there's a lot of other things. So a lot of the stuff, the old courses, if you look at the ones at Coronado, up at Camp Pendleton, uh, MCRD, you know, a lot of them we used to do in our old adventure racing, obstacle course type racing stuff. And a lot of it's just knowing how to manipulate your body and move your your body more than it is muscling up. It's like climbing a rope. I saw a kid the other day trying to climb a rope just with his arms, like pulling himself up. And I was like, good luck. That's not how you climb a rope. You use your legs. You use your legs and your core if you know how to properly climb a rope, you know. And so, If you're a girl, dude's going to jump up there and muscle your way up to the top. I'm more of like a single arm rope climb guy. <laughs> okay. But, yes. Uh, we, we've done, uh, played around on the obstacle course, yes. Yeah, so. yeah I'm, uh, when I may or may not have, I don't know what the regulation is, uh, when they when it was like the wire climb or the rope, like not the horizontal rope climb. Yeah. Right. There's the low and the high one. I fucking went low. And like, it's yeah. one of the things I look back at and I'm like, what a fucking puss. That's your one regret in life? One of the things I look back at. Yeah. Well, you know, they've many. changed it. That's what I was saying. Like, it used to be the oak course used to be open and now it's all barbed wired in and stuff. Like, they just tighten their security yeah. and for good reason, you know, and stuff. But for Text. the last few years, it's been closed you know so you guys must have been there a while ago yeah it was oh, yeah. a while ago yeah. and it, it like yeah. that rope is maybe years. like the eighth thing out of ten yeah. I, I, yeah text didn't even make it that far so are you know in case the listeners or you couldn't get number one did you, you climb did... the whole ladder the rope ladder did you yeah. Climb yeah. oh yeah that's my jam i'm into that's really tall a lot Dude, of people get scared I, really I remember high. getting up to the it, top and then oh, stopping yeah. and being like holy shit it's yeah, really oh i didn't look around yeah i sat up at the top and looked around and i thought oh fuck how am i gonna get down on this i should have stopped yeah, our buddy was. You get that rush of adrenaline from the yeah. height. Like, I'm not afraid of heights, but even when you get up to high things like that, you, if you stop and look down, then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. legit. And then the one yeah. where you got flopped is the over under thing. Over under thing, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that is. Oh, tough. with the with the um, yeah, with the, bars with the over under, thing, yeah. over under. That's mm-hmm. tough. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I got one more question. 
Okay. And this is directed at both Luke and you, Karen. Hmm. And I heard Uh-oh. you say two different pronunciations of this word. Is it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Penguin? is it data or data? It's like tomato, tomato. No, data, data. I say data because data sounds weird to me. Wasn't data a character on Star Trek? Data is a character on Star Trek. I think it's called data. data. I think it's data. No, data is a character. Or is it data? Data is on Star Trek. I'm with Karen's. Your team, Karen? Team Karen. Take it. Data. We don't need you anyway, Karen. You and your data. But you can ask my staff. I make up my own words all the time. Or I just make up (laughs) pronunciations of words. No, no, no. Don't say this. Because it makes sense in my head. So therefore... It makes sense, you know. So it could be data. Well, it's one of it's something oh, one of my give in. one of my nerd finance colleagues said to me a while back in my previous life. He said it's data. Data is a character on Star Trek. And I'm like, well, okay, well, I'm going to use that from now on. That is a cunty <laughs> statement. Luke's like, let it's me write that house. down in my book. It's my guy house. He was the house. Don't worry about that. Was I this the guy you used to used to gamble, play poker with? Uh, negative. No. Wasn't there some weird dude you used to have like a poker game with? There's a lot of weird dudes at that in that life. <laughs> now I'm gonna have to go look back at Star Trek and find this data. Person. No, no, no. Karen, yeah, there's a guy with the thing. Karen, yeah. we are correct. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, we. Did did we put it into like Google Translator? And it was I like, don't remember. That's a good idea, though. What does data. Google say? But you can't trust that Google anymore. Duck, duck, go. Ask a British person. That's what I was. You know, they ask a British person because that's usually the correct enunciation. Mm-hmm. Although. I don't know. I think we've massacred the British language over here in the United States, especially in California. We have our own language altogether. But like, are we really going to give them aluminium? No give one them what? Aluminium. Albumin? Aluminium instead of aluminum. Aluminum. Oh. Yeah. Alum- aluminium. No, aluminium. No, aluminium. Aluminium. That's what they say. Aluminium. Whoa, hard they. Okay. I didn't Harry, hear, I've never Captain heard that. Saul. Aluminium. That might not be real either. I'm no, just kind of going with it. Aluminium. Is it real in term? Sometimes when I speak to my British colleague, I have to ask him, like, what did you say again? Because it, <laughs> definitely they have enunciations that aren't how we say it here. But I also say, look who look who won and who has their freedom. No, USA. <laughs> USA. That's my second USA chant this week. What was the first? That, well, that was my, my comment last week. I'm like, look how big the British Empire used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah, just on a losing streak. Well, you yeah. know, they happened. They tried to, they expanded too far. Mm-hmm. They couldn't defend right. it anymore. No. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> awesome. Karen, you good? Let's say people want to come, uh, like, can they follow you on social media or what do you, what do you got going on? Anywhere they can follow you at? Um, I don't have like a work posting, if that's what you're saying. We're trying to actually get that going. It's funny you said that. Um, we just were talking to our PAO the other day about getting like Twitter accounts, and I'll probably put some of my staff on it. I try to avoid technology a lot, but yeah, I we currently, um, our Naval Health Research Center, we have a Facebook page for NHRC where they post stuff for our whole command, but for our individual group, uh, we don't do anything like that. I just do personal social media, but nothing public right now. Right, so cool. I'll get on it. But if you have right. questions, they can just filter them through you or you contact me. Yeah, yeah. Hit us up and then we'll we'll be the gatekeeper. Sounds so, good. Thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you like what you heard, get ready to get ready to get ready 
for the 2019 Power Athlete Symposium. What the hell am I talking about? I am talking about Dr. Karen Kelly, our most recent guest, most recently as of 30 seconds ago. She will be presenting at this year's event, and we are pumped to hear more about her work with optimizing our country's most prized weapons, the warfighters. That's right, people. December 5th through 7th in Austin, Texas. Get your tickets now. Just head to events.powerathletehq.com. Until next time, bye! Bye!